Good morning, Mars Hill. Our teaching text this morning comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 19 to 22, and it is found on page 1080 in the Blue Bibles, if you are following along. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Is there anyone else who would say the idea that the weak are made strong in Jesus is the best news ever? I, uh, <laughs> I, I would say many of you over the past week or two have reached out to us here at Mars. By the way, my name is Troy. The Lord be with you. I'm sorry, I got swept up in that lyric. Um, um, have reached out to us to say we're praying when we know that a handful of staff have been sick and have been out and there are a handful of things. There's all this bobbing and weaving and pivoting and things that are happening right now. And so I, I want to say for those of you who have done that, thank you. And I also want to say I'm so grateful for and the reality of that truth which I know we as a staff here have been trying to cling to and live into as best as we can, that there is a strength beyond our own, that there is a goodness beyond what we could ever imagine, and that we can place confidence in Jesus. I am so grateful for this story. I'm so glad that every single week we come back to this story, and I am frankly blown away that I get to help tell it. So thanks for being here. Thanks for putting that in front of us. Yeah. Um, okay, so a hmm. couple weeks ago, 
by the way, we're almost to the end of January. Way to go, everybody. You made, we've almost made it through a month of this year. At the beginning of this uh, calendar year, we started this series called Grounded. And I don't expect you to remember, but I started this series with a little history lesson about a monk named Benedict. A, a, a monk who sought to renew the religious life by calling people to a vow of stability, to this faithfulness, a faithfulness to a purpose, to a place, and to a people. And what I want to do now as we close out the series is I want to return to Benedict. And I want to focus for just a few minutes on one of the reasons why he thought stability was so important. Why did he think that groundedness was so necessary for his time and why we think that it's necessary for us. Uh, the thoughts of Benedict, they're, they're summarized in just a small little booklet called The Rule of St. Benedict. And uh, early, early on in this little book, in the first chapter, he starts uh, by kind of describing what the religious order or religious life looks like. And he describes four types of monks, people who are committed uh, vocationally to the religious life. And he talks about uh, these four types Types of monks, and he gives some pretty harsh criticism to one type of monk, the fourth type of monk that he creatively calls gyrovegs. It, it's a Latin word, and it basically means those who constantly spin around and never settle. And he tells the story about these gyrovegs as, I think, a cautionary tale for us. Here's what we do. We need to understand that uh, the religious Practice The practice for typical religious com communities would have been something like this. That you would lavishly welcome any guest that would come to you as if that person was Jesus. And so what that would mean is whenever a guest would show up, the best food and the best accommodations and the best hospitality was extended to that person for however long they were going to be with you. And these gyrovegs that Benedict talks about, they knew full well about this practice, and they took full advantage of it. So what would happen is these monks, they would show up at a monastery, and they would happily receive the benefits of being a guest, the benefits of being treated just like Jesus and they would soak up the servanthood of these other monks. And they would eat the best cu cuts of meat. They would sleep in the best accommodations. And then, once they'd been around for a little bit, and inevitably the other residents of the community would ask them to contribute, to be a part, to not just take but to give a bit, to help tend the fields, to wash dishes, to do some of the daily chores. Once that would have been brought forward, these monks, these gyrovegs, they would pack up and they would move along to some other community. And then the whole thing would start over again. They would show up and they would receive all the hospitality and the benefits and they would stay until something came up that they didn't like and they would move along. Can you imagine religious people behaving like that? 
Can you imagine religious people showing up at a community looking for the best perks, the best benefits, for the most comfortable settings, for the richest kinds of treatments, and then staying for a little while just until something came up? Something that didn't quite suit them until they were asked to make an investment or a contribution, until somebody said or did something that they didn't quite like. And then they would pick up and they would move along and go somewhere else. Can you even imagine religious people doing this? Now, I don't, I don't bring this up to be shaming. I want to go ahead and name that I know that many of us have struggled to find religious community. I know that many of us, we have sensed that there's a need to look for a different church, to find a new or fresh expression of the Christian faith. I want to acknowledge that there are valid reasons for people to seek out a different community. I don't bring this up to be shaming. I bring up this little bit of history because I want to put in front of us this reality that it has always been tough to be in a long-term relationship with a local church. It's always been tough. And even though these monks in the 500s, they might have been selfishly opportunistic, they may very well be the first example in recorded history of church hopping. Nonetheless, what they put on display for us is what many of us feel, the difficulty of being a part of a church. Because it can be really tough to be grounded in the church. But that's what I want to talk about today. I want to end, I'm trying my best, by the way, to give full attention to everyone, so forgive me for my gyro vagueness here as well. I'm recognizing it. What I want to do on this final Sunday of our Grounded series is I want to talk about this, being grounded in the church, and I want to make an appeal to be grounded in the church because of this, because I believe that the church is a reliable pathway toward being more like Jesus, and that that pathway runs directly through the middle of a localized body of believers. Let me say it again. That a reliable pathway toward being more like Jesus is found running directly through the middle of a localized body of believers. Now, before I unpack that more, before I make my case in defense of the church, I want to name a couple of other realities. First is this. Many of you here at Mars Hill have stayed and you have endured. Many of you are grounded in this local church. You have persisted through multiple changes in administration. You've persisted as we've had a cooling of our national and regional reputation. We've had bunches of weeks of virtual only services that you've persisted through. You have persisted through your personal relationships shifting to other churches. You have resisted the siren call of the gyrovags. And I thank God for you. And I honor your groundedness. 
second. Some of you have joined us in the last 12 to 18 months. Now, this might feel like a really unlikely time to join a local church, but I want to let everyone know that it is happening. It's happening here in Granville. It's happening in Grand Rapids. In fact, this past week, Stacy DeYoung, our database manager, she, told, she helped us to understand and realize that 28 new to Mars Hill families have joined our church just in the last 12 months. And those are only the ones that we know because of kids' ministry registrations. And so for those of you who have just started to join us, I thank God for you. And I honor your movements toward groundedness in this church. And then finally, I want to say this. All that I'm getting ready to say about the church is not some kind of sales pitch for Mars Hill. I want to start by, with this unremarkable fact. Our church is not perfect. It's just the way it is. It's unremarkable and true. It's not, we're, and we may not be the worshiping community for everyone. What I am going to make an appeal to here is not to Mars Hill specifically. What I'm trying to put in front of us is this, that anyone who wants to be more like Jesus needs to be grounded in some local gathering of believers. It doesn't have to be this one, but it needs to be somewhere. And that's what I want to establish for us today. Okay, here's what I want to stress. In this age, when more and more doubt is being cast on the integrity of and even the need for the local church, I still believe that the church is one of the primary ways that you and I are shaped and formed to be more and more like Jesus. And I want to put in front of you two what I think are compelling reasons to be grounded in the church. And I want to use these poetic words in Ephesians 2 as the jumping off point. Everybody okay? Yeah? I feel like I came out hot. Okay. Here's my first reason. First reason is this. We can be grounded in the church because it is the new humanity. I want to back up a few verses before what Lori read for us here in Ephesians 2. Back to verse 14, if you've got one of those Bibles. I'm going to back up just a few verses. If not, it's going to be here on the screen. At, starting at verse 14, Paul writes this. For he, Jesus himself, is our peace. Jesus who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose, Jesus' purpose, was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Okay, there is a treasure trove of theology here in these three verses. What I want to make sure we don't miss is how unlikely a situation the Apostle Paul is describing here. 
Some of us have been around the church for a while, maybe more familiar with the Bible, and we may very well lose sight of the impossibility of Jews and Gentiles being brought together. This is impossible. The categories that would have to be busted wide open and rewritten the expectations that would need to be radically shifted. There are generations of biases and prejudices that would need to be addressed and somehow overcome. So many more things. How would this uh, picture that Paul is painting even be possible? And that's what's so beautiful about this text. And what's so beautiful about the church that the text is pointing to these two parties, they become one only in and through Jesus. Jesus is the peace. Jesus is the one who destroys barriers. Jesus is the one who reconciles. Jesus created one new humanity. And Paul keeps trying to find metaphors to talk about this, to express this new reality created in Jesus. In the verses that Lori read for us, we got to see a couple of these word pictures. Fellow citizens, members of a household, a building, echoes of Second Peter in chapter 2 where it talks about li- people being living stones. Just trying to find images and to create imagination for this impossibility. All of these images, they, they, imply, they, have a, they imply a function. They imply a contribution from everyone to the whole. It's what uh, the theologian Jürgen Moltmann called, he's talked about the common work for the coming kingdom. We've all got this to contribute. And it ultimately is making its way to verse 22 that this new humanity is being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Have you ever imagined the church like this? Have you ever been taught the church is to be like this, to function this way, to be a new humanity whose very intention is to be a place where God lives? I challenge anyone to find a greater vision for the church than this to be a new people who would be a dwelling place where God lives. Friends, this new humanity, this coming together of unlikely brothers and sisters, it's always been a unique aspect of our Christian faith, and it has always been impossible. It has always been difficult. So these divisions today that we cannot imagine being healed or reconciled. These groups that appear to be so far apart that the only likely outcome are church splits. 
I want us to remember that none of these things are too difficult for Jesus to create something new. That is his purpose, to create something new. The church is intended to embody this new humanity made through him who is our peace. And that brings me to the second reason. We can be grounded in the church because it is grounded in Jesus. This is especially emphasized in verse 20, where Jesus is described, and as we just sang, is described as the chief cornerstone. This new household, it has a solid foundation anchored in Christ Jesus, who is the binding stone that holds the whole structure together. Verse 21 says that in him, the whole building is joined together. Uh, Whenever I feel discouragement or doubtful about the church, and I do. I feel discouraged and doubtful about the church at times. Whenever that comes up, I return to two particular places in Scripture, in addition to this one we're at in Ephesians. Two places that, for me, help bring back into focus, help bring back compelling direction. The first is in Matthew. Matthew 16, there's this key section which is dealing with the church. Simon has just testified that Jesus is the Messiah. He says, Jesus, you are the son of the living God. And then Jesus blesses Simon. And then he says these words to Simon, probably familiar to you. He says this, I tell you that you are now Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of death or the gates of hell in some translations will not overcome it. Now, this is one of these contentious verses in the Christian faith. It splits the Christian faith in half, Protestant and Catholic. What's at stake here and what's up for debate is what we call apostolic secession. Is this where the Pope comes from is really the argument. Um, And what what I want to say is, I I don't want to dismiss that outright. What I want to say is what happens when we focus on that part of the argument is I think we miss the point of the text. The text is saying this, Jesus is going to build the church. You're surprisingly silent when I said that. Jesus is going to build the church. This text is not about popes. This text is not about Peter. This text is not about earthly church authority structures. Jesus is the actor. Jesus establishes himself in this text as the builder. This is very good news. Jesus is the builder. And not only that, but then Jesus claims that the church won't be overcome, even by the scariest and most powerful of, folk, of forces. Friends, it's Jesus, the chief cornerstone who was building the church. And so this text, it calls us to place confidence in him, not in earthly leaders. I don't care how many retweets they have or YouTube followers or Instagram, whatevers. The confidence is to be placed in the builder of the church. The second place that I find encouragement is back here in Ephesians, again, chapter five, another section that gets a lot of press, a lot of debate. 
Um, but we miss, I think, this other wonderful image of Jesus. We have these moving images of Jesus loving the church, giving himself up for the church to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and presenting her to himself as a radiant church. A few verses later, it says that Jesus feeds and cares for the church. Such intimate actions in these verses. Not only is Jesus building the church, but he's caring for it. He's nurturing it. He's like a spouse. That's the context of these verses. He's like a spouse to the church. Despite its brokenness, despite its imperfections, committed to seeing the church be radiant. Over my almost 18 full years here, what has consistently bound me to this church is the reality that Jesus is the one who holds it all together. Jesus is our chief cornerstone. Jesus is the one who is doing the building and Jesus is the one who is ultimately feeding and caring for the church. I place my confidence in him now and forever. So we can be grounded in the church because it is grounded in Jesus. All right, there's so much, so much more to be said. In fact, our teaching team this past week, we uh, were talking a little bit and uh, we're wondering if we need to do an entire series of teachings some point in this year about, about the church to renew our imagination and, and, and desire and love for the church. But for now, I'm, I just want to close. I want to give a highlight of three ways that I think being grounded in the church makes us more like Jesus. And the first is this. I believe that the new humanity confronts individualism. I'm not sure there's a greater threat to the church of Jesus now than an unbelievable idolatry of individualism. And the new humanity paints a picture of something else. And it confronts for you and I our hunger for, addiction to, and idolatry of individualism. We have been synced not only with Jesus, but with other Christians. Like it or not, (laughs) we are synced together through Jesus. Our faith may be an individual faith, but it is never a private faith. It is always ours. And Jesus purposed to create out of many one. So come and be shaped and molded with us and by us. Two. I think the vision of becoming a dwelling, it challenges commercialism, consumerism. 
The ideal outcome of the church is so much bigger and it's so much better than concert quality music or super relevant and entertaining sermons, which you'll get next week. (laughs) Of really exciting and dynamic kids and youth programming, of good coffee, though it needs good coffee. The vision of the church is so much bigger and better than all of these things. The vision of becoming a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. That vision should radically recenter our attention and our aspirations for what the church is like. I think the church at large would benefit from less people treating it like a hotel. A place that you can check in and out of whenever you want. And you leave a tip if the service is good. This vision challenges consumerism. And then three, the chief cornerstone contests allegiances. God, yes, God has always worked through humans, but every single one of those humans has always been meant to lead people to greater devotion and love and commitment to God. Jesus is the one who holds all things together. Certainly not me, not Ashley, not Tim. Not Nikki, not Angie, not Delwyn, not Kyle, not Lori Gordon. Well. (laughs) But this chief cornerstone calls us to realign our allegiances all the time. So come and devote yourself more singularly to Jesus with us. So these two realities from Ephesians 2, this new humanity and the church being grounded in Jesus, they're emphasized and they're actualized every single time we come to this table. Just think about the ways the different traditions talk about this moment of our worship service. Some call it communion. And the idea associated with that language is that a union is established or is renewed between us and God. But that union is established and renewed also between everyone who shares in the meal together. And so the new humanity, this joining together of the many into one household, into one family, it's renewed and it's made new here at this meal every week. And some traditions call it the Lord's Supper. And the idea with that language is that this time is a gift to us from Jesus that it is his to give us, that he is the one who is in charge of the meal, he is the host, we are the guests. And so this meal reminds us that he is the one in charge. 
that he is the cornerstone. He is the one who holds it all together. So this is what I want to do today. I want to invite you to participate a little differently in this part of our worship. We're going to make our way through the liturgy as we normally do. But then when, we, when we're singing this first song, I, I, I want to, I'm hoping that we will emphasize that we are one household held together by Jesus. So during the first song, I want to encourage you um, to bring back to your seats the bread and the juice without eating or drinking it. And I want to invite you to hold that for a couple of minutes. And I'm going to come back and I'm going to lead us to eat and drink together. Just as a symbolic moment where we would say we are a body, we are a family who receive and eat and drink this meal together. Does that make sense? So uh, I'll come back here in a couple minutes uh, and lead us through that. Friends, the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. And let us give thanks to the Lord our God. And in the spirit of thanksgiving, would you pray with me? Oh, how right and how good and how joyful a thing it is at all times and in all places to give thanks to you, God Almighty, the cornerstone, the creator of heaven and earth. Therefore, we praise you, joining our voices with angels and archangels and with all of the company of heaven who forever sing this hymn to proclaim the glory of your name. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And so, Spirit, would you make these simple elements for us, spiritual food, would they sustain us? And would they draw us more and more together into this new humanity? And may they renew our allegiance to you, the chief cornerstone, the one who holds it all together. In Christ's name we pray, and amen. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and he broke it, and he took a cup, and he blessed it, and he offered both to his disciples, and he said, take these, eat them, drink them. And whenever you do these things, you proclaim this great story, the story of my death and my resurrection, of my ultimate rule and reign over all creation. And you do that every time you take and eat and drink. And so we do our best in the eating, but also in the rehearsing of the story to, to summarize it. And so we proclaim this great mystery of our faith together, saying these words, Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. So friends, receive who you are the body and the blood of Christ. And we will eat and drink together in just a couple minutes. Thank you.